Welcome to the Board of Excitement podcast from Public Grief Junkie. Hello and hello and uh, welcome to our fourth podcast. Uh, my name is still Paul and this week I thought we could look at death and booze. Uh, which are often linked, especially, it has to be said, in 18th century London, where we're going to be jetting off to in just a minute, by virtue of a thing that I wrote for somebody called Madame Guillotine, which is not presumably her real name. She's at Madame Guillotine on Twitter, and she's got a website called www.madameguillotine.org.uk, and she does loads of stuff about this time period and, and this and the other. It's all very gruesome and boozy, and she writes novels about posh doom. And I wrote this bit for her, actually, uh, some time ago. It concerns drinking yourself to death in Georgia and London. After that, we're going to chat about me not drinking myself to death, but drinking myself to a state of being arrested at Joe's Stag Do. Joe was a guy uh, who worked and kind of still does work in conjunction with us. Um, who got married a few years ago with uh, hilarious results. And lastly, we're going to jog through last week's podcast. So this is the first uh, piece. It's called Dead Drunk, A Girl's Night Out During the Gin Craze. Whichever way you dress it up, gin is horrible. All neat spirits are horrible, but gin is the worst. The fact that you have to put tonic water, which is also horrible, and lemon which is a principal ingredient of oven cleaner, in the same glass to cheer it up, tells you something. Not only is it a horrible drink, but it became popular during, and as a result of, horrible times. Quite often, the London of yester century is portrayed as a plague-ridden freak show, which is often a lazy perpetuation of historical stereotypes. However, London during the gin craze, roughly speaking 1740 to 50, was a 100,000 acre running saw, Widespread economic migration into the city, combined with a shortage of anything for anyone to do once they got there, meant that people were poorer than they had ever been. Among other pleasantries, it had no public sanitation or police force or fire brigade or anything at all, really. It already wasn't much of a giggle, but if you chuck cholera, typhoid, tuberculosis and that old favourite Black Death, the twist and shout of lethal pathogens, into the mix, it was grim indeed. Everyone was very poor and very miserable. You couldn't even kill yourself, as it was a sin, and you'd go to hell. What you could do, though, was drink. Well, sort of. In order to annoy everyone even more, import taxes had been placed upon all the more sophisticated boozes, your wine, vodka, and so on, making them incredibly expensive. The theory was if you stop people drinking, everything will be all right. In order to extend this train of thought to domestically produced spirits, a license was required to distill gin, and made so expensive as to render the activity economically unfeasible. While it was indeed impossible to distill gin legally, it was entirely possible to do so illegally, and gin shops popped up all over the place. In some parts of London, every third residential property was selling gin. The government countered this by offering a bounty to members of the public who snitched on these illegal gin distilleries. In turn, the public countered this by lynching anyone who looked a bit dodgy. What the authorities had failed to grasp was not that the public had a drink problem, but that this drink problem had arisen as a response to a simple need to escape the grinding horror of everyday life by getting completely out of your face by any means possible. Modern gin is not a delicious beverage, but gin-crazed gin would be literally unpalatable to the contemporary alcohol fan. It was pretty much anyone's guess as to what went into it, for a start. The conditions in which it was produced 
were not exactly whistle clean, with rodents and the cats kept to hunt them regularly falling into the gin vats and adding to the fun. One positive aspect of the beverage was that it was so strong as to have antiseptic qualities. You could lob a horse into the gin vats and no one would be any the wiser. Not by chance, the phrase blind drunk emerged at this time. It wasn't just your eyesight you could lose. The phrase could easily have been teeth drunk or larynx drunk or central nervous system drunk. The ominous dead drunk also came to the fore during the gin craze for reasons that need no explanation, but that we shall nonetheless dwell upon. Of all the unfortunates in London in the 1740s, among the most unfortunate of all were the competitively priced and aggressively syphilitic prostitutes who operated in the poorer areas of the city. Among this doomed class arose a particular drinking game for which you needed the following. Three prostitutes, a jug of gin, a table and a chair for each player. The table and chairs are not strictly necessary, but help to make the occasion more sociable. Why the number of prostitutes is set at three is something of a mystery, but it's probably traditional, like changing ends at half-time. Gin was usually served warm to make it even more unpleasant, and a jug would hold about a gallon measure. The rules were simple. You down a large glass of gin, about a quarter of a pint, then hand the glass to the next player. They do the same, and the glass is handed on again. Play continues until two of the participants have died. The remaining player is declared the winner. Like backgammon, it's an easy game to learn, but a difficult one to master. Unlike backgammon, however, winning is less fun than losing, as a loss at backgammon does not entail probable organ failure. There are many sad things about willfully drinking yourself to death for a laugh, although perhaps none are sadder than the circumstances that have made your life not worth living in the first place. Uniquely in history, the majority of people in London had nothing to live for except a rapid decline into the most vile and degrading poverty and valued themselves very cheaply as a result. Death by gin was considered spiritually pure than outright suicide because technically it was the gin that was the cause of death, not the drinking. Incidentally, this is the same kind of logic that pirates at the time called upon when making prisoners walk the plank. It was the falling off that did you in, not the walking. If caught, the pirates could not be tried for murder in the same way that the souls of absolutely hammered prostitutes could not be classed as suicides when applying to get into heaven. Happily, conditions did improve, of course. Gin became less lethal, the economy turned round, and people sobered up a bit. Things have never been easy for those at the bottom of the pile. That's what being at the bottom of the pile is all about. But the next time you're a bit hacked off after a heavy night because someone's jumped the queue at the kebab shop and you're in danger of missing the night bus, say, it could be worse, I could be a prostitute in the mid-18th century, out loud in strident tones, and remind yourself how lucky you are. Well, I hope you like that. It wasn't particularly cheery, no. But then, I suppose in many ways, this isn't a particularly cheery podcast this week. Uh, but let's press on, because now we're going to talk about boozing again, uh, and London again. Uh, it's an old blog post from years and years and years ago, and it's called I Needlessly Fought the Law. Dear Rachel, considering I don't like either honey or brandy... I was intrigued recently to find myself banging honey brandy shots off the bar at the Duke of Wellington Public House, Toynbee Street, London E1, at three in the morning, with the rest of the idiot battalion making up Joe's stag night. It was a shambolic crew by that point, as you can probably imagine, and I had reached a point where words seemed to be too large to get out of my mouth. 
I have a recollection of the best man raising a glass to the happy couple and falling over, exactly like the Statue of Liberty would do, and appears, Joe's brother, with the title of ring bearer on the day of the wedding itself, like some kind of hobbit, shouting at a jukebox. I left shortly after three and wandered back through the small maze of streets connecting Commercial Road with Bishopsgate, deciding to get a cab home in case I got mugged for the weekend's takings, which I was carrying in a holdall. This turned out to be quite ironic. Just by the Bishopsgate entrance to Liverpool Street Station, where the Café Nero usually is, I crouched down to get some money from the holdall, whereupon two blokes walked up beside me and gave me the gentlest push, which was sufficient to make me roll completely over. One then grabbed the holdall by one handle. However, I managed to grab the other handle and then ensued a brief tussle in the manner of, as inexplicably went through my mind at the time, two old ladies squabbling over a tea towel as we kind of danced around the stricken bag. I boxed for a very long time when I was a bit younger, and in any case, quite like a good scrap, so I was desperately trying to draw my assailant in close enough to land a decent right upon him when, miracle of miracles, a police car pulled up. It's the kind of thing that makes you want to start paying taxes again. However, being brought up in the Mile End district of East London before it became full of humanities students from Midlands towns, I have a natural fear and loathing of the old bill, and when my muggers ran off, I ran off with them. I don't mean I ran off after them, or away from them, I actually ran off with them, in the same direction, at the same speed. I don't know whether I thought I would lie low at their place till it had all blown over, or what, as I was technically an accessory to my own mugging at this point. I also realised how very difficult running when drunk is. I was moving more like a gazebo than a gazelle, <laughs> lolloping along like Neil Armstrong, or like someone hurdling invisible bollards. This made me very easy for the police to catch, arrest for a fray, bundle into a car, and take to Bow Road Nick. I had become very confused by now, having been arrested for, as far as I could make out, either A, going to a stag party, or B, being mugged. There was quite a nice moment as I arrived at the police station, when they were trying to get a statement, and I was doing the overcompensating due to drunkenness routine, which in this case consisted of me babbling on, going, look, I know what you're thinking, serious, I know what you're thinking, totally ideal, I totally know what it is you're thinking, and so on and so on. And the copper said, yeah, how about you tell me what you're thinking, and I can start writing it down, which was immediately followed by being put into a cell with prisoner insensible on my charge sheet. Waking up was not a lot of fun. However, everything went reasonably well, and I was given a cold breakfast muffin from McDonald's and a can of Pepsi Max, and managed to answer awkward questions as to why I was running away from the police in the early hours of the morning carrying a bag full of money. Bishopsgate is well camered up, and I think all they did was have a quick look at the CCTV, laugh a great deal, save it to show their mates, and decide to release me without charge for being a harmless simpleton. I eventually rolled into Camden at 11.30, still pretty hammered, to find that Martin and Tony had put my stuff onto my pitch. I put the various piles of T-shirts onto the stool and then slept underneath it for most of the rest of the day. That, then, was Joe's stag night. And now we're going to read through last week's uh, blog post, which, again, is not. there's not much to shout about, actually. It involves death again, death and delays on public transport. So... Uh, I do apologise for the somewhat downbeat nature of this week's um, podcast, but, uh, but there we are. Okay. Blah. 
This piece is called The Man Under the Train. Dear Rachel, I sometimes wonder what people reading Take a Break are taking a break from. I suspect it's reading other magazines like Take a Break, but whatever it is, it isn't being part of a House of Commons Select Committee on Public Transport. I am able to state this with authority after listening at some length to a discussion that took place as a result of delays to a recent London-bound train service, upon which I was a passenger. Well, it was more than delayed. It had been irretrievably halted on the London approaches after someone killed themselves in front of it at Shenfield. I had retained a stoic attitude as the guard repeatedly apologised for the disruption this would cause our various mornings. Reflecting that although my morning had been disrupted, it was not as bad as that which had befallen the man under the wheels at Shenfield Station. Or, come to think of it, the several mornings, afternoons, evenings and nights he must have spent prior to deciding that this was a reasonable course of action to take. Due to what was at least the last bad morning he would ever have, my train was reversed back up a branch line at Romford, and here, transferring to a replacement service, was where I found myself at a table containing ladies reading and discussing Take a Break. Not that there's anything wrong with Take a Break, of course. I have an outstanding £100 bet with a mate over who can get a story into the Aunt Men Daft section first, which I should probably take more seriously. A ton's a ton, after all. I'll probably supplement mine with a picture of myself asleep in a deck chair, something of a prerequisite for the genre, frequent use of the word hubby, and the oil tanker I'm supposed to be driving ploughing into a primary school. That's a daft thing I have done. Besides, there was widespread sympathy among my new companions for the man under the train, of course, but less so for the train company. To my mind, they appeared blameless, unless extending complimentary tea and coffee to first-class passengers represented an intolerable societal privilege, and this had in turn driven him to take his own life. They had no case to answer. The most popular suggestion for how to deal with delays on the rail network was simply to build another rail network, either alongside it or above it, and just swap the trains over in case of incident. This met with all but a standing ovation from those seated nearby. One woman, whose tattooist must still be laughing, suggested that coaches be kept in a constant state of readiness every few miles, so that delayed rail passengers could carry on their journeys when things like this happened. There was also some criticism of the rail company for not enclosing all the rails in a tunnel to prevent members of the unhappy community jumping in front of the rolling stock. Well, we can assume he was unhappy. I would doubt that few people choose to kill themselves because they are so blissed out that they simply can't imagine life getting any better. In any case, putting everything in tunnels hasn't worked very well for the London Underground. A tube driver once explained to me that due to the prevalence of suicide pits around the network, you're far more likely to slide under the train if you leapt from the platform and end up alive but with your legs cut off. Ironic, really, he mused, because if you thought you already had problems, you've just doubled them. We also agreed that the next time you tried it, someone would have to push you off in your wheelchair and then get charged with manslaughter. So it pays to keep your chin up if you can. This fact escapes the take-a-break ladies, who, having moved on from discussing pictures of dogs in sunglasses to a cohesive contingency strategy for the rail network, now started discussing what might happen at the funeral of the man who was under the train. One of them had been to a celebration of life recently and said that it had been lovely. My old man's funeral was billed as a celebration of life, and as I shouldered the coffin afterwards, I reflected upon celebrations marked by a chapel full of plainclothes cops relatives handcuffed to prison wardens, and a police helicopter hovering overhead. One of my half-brothers had also applied to carry the coffin, but has refused despite being handcuffed to the largest human being I've ever seen. 
I put forward the case that he was bound to be missed if he absconded from a six-man coffin carrying party, but to no avail. During my eulogy, I pointed to the coffin and said, Am I the only one not entirely convinced there's anyone in there? Which admittedly could have backfired, but the day was already surreal enough. In any case, it drew appreciative nods and noises from family members and, you cocky little bastard, glances from the law enforcement community. Mild man moved in complex circles. Anyway, I found myself thinking that if the man under the train had had his life celebrated while he was actually still alive, he might have been heartened enough to continue living it. On the other hand, perhaps he wouldn't have. Some people are going to do what they're going to do, regardless. And I suppose we'll never know. Meanwhile, my companions chatted on. I just feel sorry for this poor bloke, one of them said, nodding towards me, having to listen to us prattling on. The other, noticing I was writing furiously in a notebook, smiled and said, Here, you aren't writing about all this in your notebook, are you? No, I replied, perhaps not entirely truthfully. Yeah, you carry on like that, mate. I'll come round there. Thanks again for listening. Thanks, thanks again for li- 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 listening. Thanks again for listening. Thanks, 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 thanks for listening. Thanks to Richie at Little Rock Audio. Little Rock, Little Rock, Little Rock Audio. Mind there you go, and we'll mind there you go, and we'll mind there you go, and we'll see you next week. Ta-da! That was issue four of the Board of Excitement podcast from Public Grief Junkie. Thanks for listening.